Inflation has seeped into every area of the economy, both goods and labor. For federal contractors operating under fixed-price contracts and for the Defense Department itself, the pressure is real. Now the National Defense Industrial Association has completed a detailed look at just how inflation has affected budgets. We get highlights from the association's chairman, retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro. Arnold, good to have you back. Tom, a privilege to be with you. You have found basically that because of inflation, regardless of whatever adjustments are made right now for contracts, looking at the 2023 budget proposals, the sheet just doesn't cover the bed. Tom, as you know well, and as your astute listeners know, we're 10 days from the start of the new government budget year, and Congress has not passed one of the funding bills, and we're likely to start under a continuing resolution. And as you know, that traditionally is at last year's level. And so if that happens, and I don't think we're going to see a government shutdown, but on the other hand, we have not had the kind of inflationary pressures that we've had in CRs since the late 70s and early 80s. And so we're going to start the fiscal year in a deep, deep hole when it comes to national security and homeland security. Frankly, if we start the fiscal year at a CR, it will be the equivalent for DOD of a sequester level cut of close to 10% or $6 billion a month. If it runs two and a half months, $15 billion, there are people talking about it running into January. I think that would be a huge mistake. That's $25 billion. That's serious money for the Department of Defense. And so not only do we have a near-term problem when our enemies are on the warpath, but the longer-term problem for inflation in FY23, to their great credit, the Department of Defense got OMB to give them an extra $20 billion in terms of the budget request compared to FY22. Three of the four markups of defense bills have added $40 billion. So there's going to be $60 billion over FY22, but none of that goes into effect unless you pass the appropriation bills, which hasn't happened, and there's no hope of it happening till later in the year. So we are in a deep, deep hole when it comes to inflation in our Department of Defense. Yeah, between Congress and inflation, it's kind of like a crab with two pinchers coming here at the Defense Department. And the inflation, in your knowledge, seems to be across the board. That is to say, labor, of course, but transportation and even things like ordnance, which are made out of chemicals and metals and have to be transported. So it gets down to a pretty fine-grained level then, doesn't it? That's right. And, and DOD has a series of deflators or inflation estimates for every different category. It's not one size fits all. And they fuel inflation, you know, they've already had to find $4 billion to cover the increased cost of fuel over what was budgeted as the world's largest consumer of fuel on a day-to-day basis. But I mean, inflation hits the domestic agencies. For example, HHS in the House passed bill is $20 billion higher than FY22. If we start in the CR, they not only have the 10% inflation cut, but they don't get access to the increased funding in the bill. So it's not just the Department of Defense. It's federal, civil, it's DOD. This is just no way. And again, everybody's gotten kind of affirmed to basically, for this is the 25th straight year, we're going to start with a CR. But frankly, we haven't had these kind of inflationary pressures, and we haven't had the, the world on fire like we have right now. Yeah, they say every so often something happens to remind the younger generation to turn the lights off, and I guess Correct. we're in that period right now. But in your view, to the extent of your knowledge, to have the DOD units that are affected, have they done the homework applying their indicators of inflation and so forth such that if Congress says, okay— We'll give you the extra money, but show us the justification. Is the department prepared to do that, do you think? 
The good news is I believe they are because between Mike McCord, the undersecretary comptroller, and Susanna Bloom, who's the head of the cost analysis and evaluation, Kate, these are two of the savviest, smartest people when it comes to matters like this. But we're not going to know the answer, frankly, till we get the FY24 five-year program to see if they've repriced it for the inflation that's already happened and inflation that's projected. And I think they're working on that. But it's a huge bill, and they're going to have to get OMB to basically play ball with them. The Congress has added money the last two years to the budget request, and Congress's role is they got to pass their bills on time. So I do think internal to the department, they're working this very, very, very hard. We've got to fix 22 and 23, but hopefully when we see the 24 budget, it will be an acknowledgement of the reality that we're all dealing with. We're speaking with retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro, who is, at least for a few more days, chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association. You're moving on from that slot, right, and getting back to your consulting? That, that, well, that's correct. I will stay on as chairman emeritus and chairman of the Emerging Technologies Advisory Board. The way it works at NDIA, you're the vice chairman for two years, the chairman for two years. Then you have two more years in a leadership position. This is my second tour doing both. So I'll be turning the reins over to a terrific business leader, Michael Bayer, and I will be staying on supporting him. All right. So getting back to the Defense Department, you have put forth a figure that you think is needed for 2023. It's a big figure, at least uh, compared to what we've been seeing. What is it and what needs to happen immediately, do you think? Basically, it's $60 billion, of which the administration and Mike McCord and Lloyd Austin got $20 $20 billion more out of the OMB and the budget request, and the Congress basically has acknowledged the next 40, and it's in three of the four bills. So frankly, the numbers are there, and we just got to get the bills passed. And so hopefully in the final analysis, when they get back after the mid-year, and hopefully they'll basically solve the appropriation process before calendar year 23, that everybody knows the DOD number is going to have to come up. A lot of the domestic numbers are going to have to come up. The problem is right now, the Congress is in its usual gridlock. And, you know, anybody that says they know exactly what's going to happen after the mid-year. But the good news is between the administration's increase and the marks in three of the four bills, we have the right numbers if they'll only do their job. And what does the department and the different components need to do until some money does come through, that extra money or the CR? Well, NDIA, with our sister associations, AIA and the PSC, great leaders there and Eric Fanning and Dave Berto, we've gone to the appropriation and leadership and said, we think FY22 ought to start at a higher level to take into account so that the various agencies can spend at a higher level and not take that sequester level cut. We also think they ought to allow for new starts and rate increases. So we're hoping, and OMB actually, in one of the anomalies that they've sent up, they've sent up one to request that the department be allowed to spend in their operations and maintenance accounts at a much higher level than FY22. So between all of that, if they will acknowledge some of that in the CR, then we can buy ourselves a little breathing room till they finalize the bills after the mid-year. It's kind of ironic in some sense because there have been supplemental appropriations to the tune of a couple of billion dollars, if you add them all up, for acquiring items to send to Ukraine. The buying for Ukraine in that effort seems to be more powerful in terms of the dollars expended than what the department has for its own use. That's right. And and we actually need money to replenish the stocks that we've drawn down to send them to Ukraine. And to show you how powerful $6 billion is, which is the hit DOD is going to take if we're stuck at, per month at last year's level, 
you can buy 4 million 155 millimeter artillery rounds, which would essentially put the Russian military back in the Stone Age. You could buy 35,000 high Mars rockets, which are needed, or you could buy 18,500 Javelin missiles. This is real money and real capability that we need, that Ukraine needs, that our own military needs, that we won't get access to if they don't start the year on 1 October at a different rate of expenditure than a typical CR. It sounds like individual members understand this, but that organization just can't act as a complete orchestra. Tom, you hit the nail on the head. What I've said is the individual members are terrific. Don't get me wrong. I I have the greatest respect for the leaders, including the leaders of the appropriation process. If they would turn this over to Rosa DeLauro and Kate Rancher, Dick Shelby and Pat Lay, they'd fix this in a heartbeat. But as an institution, Congress, I call the broken branch. They just basically, as an institution, don't get their work done on a timely basis. Retired Marine Corps Major General Arnold Panaro is chairman of the National Defense Industrial Association. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to do it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the NDIA study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think 
the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups, you might get this experience. But really, where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.